Father in heaven, we thank you for providing for us these moments that we share together. We thank you that because of the work of Jesus Christ our Lord, which is symbolized before us today at your table, the broken body, the shed blood, which is the propitiation for our sins, the precious price for our justification, wherein in the whole scope of redemption, the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin is removed because of our mediator and our sacrifice and our high priest, our Savior, our Lord, our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so as we have sung these songs in hopes to bring glory to your name, we now pray that you would open our heart so that we might understand more of who you are, what you've done, the glorious power of the gospel, the promises of those that are, that are yes and amen for those who love you, the confidence and assurance that comes from realizing your great strength, your arm that is mighty to save, reaching into history. Father, sending your only Son incarnate at the perfect fullness of time to intervene in the course of events to bring resurrection life to the elect, paying the price for our sins. I pray, Lord, as we open your scriptures today, that you would transform us and that our mind would be renewed by their contents, that we might glorify you beyond this place in joyful, faithful obedience of the faith among the nations. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise God. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to join together in true Christian fellowship today and to open His Word together. As you're turning to Hebrews chapter 11, I was struck this week meditating on the sermon that Pastor Joe Reed delivered for us last week of the value and the power of the relationship that is forged when believers share the most meaningful of any experience in common namely the love and life of Jesus Christ. What a precious gift each one of us is to each one of each other. And that is the reality of our relationships as the body of Christ transformed in Jesus our Savior. And so I was, having been reminded of that from the word brought to us last week, it's exciting to think what more the Lord might remind us of this week as we open his scriptures. Today the, our message is from the great compendium or catalog or hall of faith as it's sometimes called in Hebrews 11 where the author summons a list of witnesses that illuminate and illustrate and demonstrate what faith looks like through all redemptive history under uh, spectacular circumstances oftentimes in trial and sometimes in victory we see the example of faithfulness in the, course of the, uh, in the course of historical events and, and in the course of individual lives of, the, of believers. And so this leads us to our message today, which is from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12, entitled, Archetype Abraham. What is an archetype? It's a prototype, a perfect example, a classic snapshot to describe or to illustrate or to represent something. In this, in this way, Abraham is the perfect archetype for faith. Or when I say perfect, I mean relatively speaking, among humans. Abraham 
is the father of the faith. He's sometimes called in the scriptures. He is the one that is a signal representative of God's work in the heart and life of an individual. And so his life is a valuable teaching tool for us today. Stand with me if you would and if you're able with your Bible open to Hebrews 11. And behold the holy and infallible word of God this day. Follow with me as I read these words. Our scripture today, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we consider the list of examples in the hall of faith, so to speak, so far, we have now number four. Abel was an example listed in verse four, followed by Enoch in verse five. He was followed by Noah as an example in verse seven. And now in verse eight, our author sums to the, summons to the witness stand Abraham as an example of faithfulness lived out in the heart and life of an individual in the course of redemptive history. This is contextually powerful. Why does the author choose these examples as he begins to move chronologically through history as God has affected his will in the life course of these representatives? Why does he choose these examples? One powerful reason is apparent as we look at a few of these examples and how they relate. For instance, this lineup of great faith illuminating examples is especially interesting as one considers the events recorded in Genesis 10 and 11. That is the, uh, the uh, record of, of revelation between Noah and Abraham. What happens? Well, in Genesis 11, a post-flood society arises. They come together, they build the Tower of Babel, and in verse 4 of chapter 11 of Genesis, they say this, Come! Let us build for ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Of course, you remember the story. The Lord, in the course of events, foils their plans, and judges their humanistic efforts. They have also, in so doing, collectively building this tower, seeking refuge for themselves and to make a name, they have abandoned the commandment of Scripture, the cultural mandate to go and to subdue the whole earth as Noah and his descendants were charged after the ark has landed. And so here we have once again a record of the disobedience of the collective people turning away from the commandment, faithlessly serving their own ends and constructing this tower that is building a city. 
So God judges them. He disperses them all by himself. And if they won't do it on their own, he will send them out by confusing their languages. Thus, in the ruins of this idolatrous failed city, that is Babel and its tower, in the ruins of this idolatrous failed city, God calls a man, if you will. We turn over a page or so. And the next chapter, Genesis chapter 11 and 12, end of 11, beginning of 12, we have the introduction of our character today, this archetype of the faith, Abraham. In the ruins of the failed city, God calls a man from the comforts of his own pagan city, Ur and Haran. And thus he is sent out under this call of God as a sojourner. God makes a covenant with him. And so it is God's destiny for Abraham himself that his entire life will be lived as a nomad, a sojourner in faith, looking for a promised city whose builder and maker is God himself. Babel is destroyed, but there is an architect and there are plans for the city of God. These are the two uh, ways that we see mankind organizing himself, themselves, throughout all of history. They will either congregate around a Babel plan, man's means of providing his own safety, uh, net, and security and salvation, or they will seek in faith the promises of God and a city whose designer and builder is divine. Even if they must live as a stranger and an alien, as a nomad, as a peculiar people in the midst of a society that rejects the Lord, they nevertheless know the architect of the ultimate, final, glorious city that pictures security and salvation. This is the message all through Scripture. Abraham had much less to go on than do we. The revelation of Jesus Christ and His Scriptures as it unfolds reveals more and more of the blueprints of the city of God. We turn to the final book in the canon as it's organized before you, the Bible in your lap today, and you find in Revelation 21, which we'll touch on later, the blueprints for the city include 12 foundation stones, the names of the apostles, whose record is recorded for us in the New Testament, and upon them a glorious edifice, a place, an environment, a redeemed scenario where hearts of individual people and all of their surroundings now is perfectly established and ordered and built. And the relationships and the synergistic connections of love for one another and the entire mutual dependency of that people is such that it is the perfect city of God. Abraham was willing to wander for years and then, in fact, his entire life without having an established place in this life that he could call home in faith of that great city to come. Genesis 15, 6 tells us that he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Thus, it is no surprise that Paul in Romans 4 recognizes and expounds the paradigmatic, that is the programmatic or the pattern that Abraham represents, that call. Romans 4 recognizes and expounds under the pen of Paul, demonstrating the elements central to the gospel and the so and sovereignly ordained faith and promises resting on the grace of God. What is faith? We mentioned last week a, perhaps a summary phrase. Faith could be described as believing in and acting on 
the promises and power of God. Faith is believing in and acting on the Word of God. As we go on to consider our text today then in Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, it is also no surprise that the author of Hebrews devotes more of his text than the compendium of faith to the archetype Abraham than he does any other example. And so we turn to the life of Abraham. Let us consider what we can learn from this great patriarch or father of the faith. Here's a heading for you. The life of Abraham in our text today reveals the relationship between three sets. First of all, faith and obedience. Secondly, the life of Abraham reveals the relationship between faith and promise. And under faith and promise, we'll spend some time on the concept of the city of God. And then thirdly this morning, the life of Abraham reveals the relationship between faith and power. Faith and obedience, faith and promise, faith and power. Turning to our text again, Hebrews 11:8, we have this account. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. What a surprising verse. There is paradoxes here, and we'll touch on those a little bit more. In the next verse, we have some surprising and apparent contradictions as well. First of all, let us consider, though, the relationship between faith and obedience that is revealed and demonstrated in Abraham's life. Notice that first phrase, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Turn over uh, quickly with me to Romans chapter 1. In the great book of Romans, there are bookends, the beginning and the end. You may have noticed this before. I'm sure I've commented on it more than once. But they provide a theme or an aim, a purpose for which Paul is writing. We see them twice. We see this intent listed twice in the book of Romans, the beginning and the end. Romans 1.5. Through whom, backing up to verse 4, I should just start at 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to do something, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, that is for His glory, among the nations. Obedience of the faith for the sake of His, Christ's name, among the nations is the author's intent of the book of Romans. In chapter 16, these sentiments are reiterated. In this great doxological close, this worshipful closing, in verse 25, Romans 16, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. And notice the next phrase. To bring about the obedience of faith. To who? The only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The message of Paul 
the author of Hebrews, the life of Abraham, testifies to the relationship between faith and obedience. It is to the great glory of God, it is for Christ's namesake, that when He transforms a people by His sovereign hand, by granting them the gift of faith, that it then evidences itself in their life by obedience to His commands. We will find later in the Word of God that James tells us faith without works is dead. We'll perhaps touch on that more uh, closely later. Nevertheless, Romans 1.5 declares for our purposes now that grace was shed abroad in the life of the early believers through the apostleship that was granted to him and then shared through him to the church and through the recorded word to us today is meant, intended to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of Christ's name. And this is exactly what Abraham did. Abraham received divine revelation. God spoke to Abraham repeatedly in the course of his life, revealing to him the word of God. God revealed his intent for Abraham's life. And when he did so, he sparked in this man the seed of faith that caused him to take that step of faith by gospel faithfulness and obedience to move beyond the security of his surroundings into a life and a lifestyle of obedience. This is the example of faith and obedience in Abraham's life. This patriarch is then referred to again in Romans 4. And we see why he is such a good example and a prototype for those who will come after as we read in verses 20 through 24 says, no distrust made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And notice again the theme of faith connected to the example of Abraham. Continues verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Remember, acting and believing on the promises and the power of God. Verse 22, that is why his, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. So the record of Abraham wasn't just for his sake. But verse 24, Romans 4 tells us, But for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, God the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Again, emphasizing throughout the course of the New Testament the importance of Abraham's example. He is the father of the faith illustrated clearly that believing in the Lord and his faith in God's promises, his trust in the sovereignly revealed word of God was the foundation of his life. It empowered him for obedience it was the ground of his justification, or it was the ground of his righteousness, that this was evidence of what God had done to transform his heart and his soul. And now Abraham, as this regenerated man, born again by the sovereign hand of God, testifies to the relationship of faith and obedience. Abraham was called. We see this important word in our text again in Hebrews 11. Again, we've considered by faith Abraham obeyed in chapter, or verse 8 of chapter 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. 
that he was to receive as an inheritance. That a concept, that idea, this biblical theological category of calling is extremely important. It is primary. It is foundational. It is causal. It is the beginning of new life in Christ. You remember again in Romans, the great golden chain of redemption begins with the sovereign call of God, awakening from the depth of sinful slumber and death, the soul to be alert to hear the word of God. Thus the calling of Abraham was the foundation of his faith and life of faith, and so it is for us. The calling of God through the proclamation of His Word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart when you first testified to faith in Jesus Christ. And as the Lord continues to use that tool to spur you on to good works, this call of the Lord through His Scriptures arouses you from the slumbers of spiritual death unto life in Christ. And it is the foundation of your faith, just as it was for Abraham. He was called and so are we. Abraham was called to go out from someplace. Joshua 24, 2-3 tells us that the context of Abraham's environment in his family and in his culture was idolatrous. He just lived uh, saturated if he was walking in the flesh with an environment, a scenario that was worshiping probably the sun god, the moon god among these peoples like the Hittites and those that populated the area where he was born and raised. They worshiped the, cre- uh, the creation. They worshiped the creature, not the creator. And so this is the life that he knew. How could he know any different? He was raised in a household that elevated uh, things to the place of God that should not be there. He was born in an idolatrous situation, and this is the situation from which he was called. God intervened And this life and lifestyle of Abraham, his surrounding culture, and even his family experience, and called him forth. Some of you are first generation believers, perhaps, in this room. Some of you heard the calling of the Lord from a pagan home, an idolatrous situation. And all of us are called to step forth, to be unique in a culture of pagan idolatry. Be separate from them. Come out. Be holy as I am holy. This is the call of the Lord out from something. Out from the idolatrous, sin-saturated culture and experience of everyone before they meet Christ. And it is the gracious hand of the Lord intervening in a situation where we would otherwise be helpless. Abraham grew up in Ur. He later moved to Haran. These were two cities modeled something like Babel. Though God did not destroy them in the same way, they were doomed for destruction. Where is Ur today? Where is Haran today? You might find a collection of a handful of bricks here and there under the careful sweeping brush of the archaeologists. But that glorious city is not populated by the interchange of commerce. The roads are no longer paved and bustling with the free interchange of people's uh, lavish ideas and pleasures. No. They're buried under the sands and winds of judgment somewhere in the remote Middle East. Why? Because they were cities populated by pagans who were not constructed on the word of God. They were organizations of man serving man who sought to find security and hope in worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But Abraham, we know where he is today. He is in 
He is fellowshipping among the faithful who are in heaven awaiting for us. And the record of his life, though he never built a building uh, with his own hands, so far as we know, though he never established a monument to his legacy, the way, we ex- the way we might expect or even desire in the flesh. There is no building that boasts that Abraham was its design and architect. Yet, the faithful life of a sojourner, a wandering nomad, is recorded for us. And it changes hearts and lives even today. And the legacy of Abraham preaches the gospel from the annals of history to our ears today, thousands of years later, because he was called out of the counterfeit of pagan culture unto new life in Christ and faithful obedience unto his God. This is the effectual call. When God resurrects a sinner from spiritual death, he does so by an effectual call, by a powerful proclamation, by a siren sounding in their spiritual ear that awakes them from their sinful slumbers unto attention submission, repentance, faith, and then obedience. The term call in Scripture indicates, it designates calling to attention those who are distracted or slumber or indeed are dead. It's a summons, it's a herald, it's a proclamation. The term calling refers and connotes to and connotes anointing or appointing to a task. There's often naming associated. There is a a granting of an identity, of a new person and and purpose, and this happened to Abraham. There's a direction. This is the effectual call of the Lord. And this is the beginning of a life of faith and obedience. Abraham experienced it, and so in Christ do we. Finally, we read of the works of faith that Abraham ventured upon after he was called from Ur and Haran. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. And you know many of the faithful works of Abraham and the stories as they're recorded, the count as it's recorded in the Old Testament. This reminds us again in the life of Abraham, the relationship of faith and obedience. Or as James puts it, the next book in your Bible, the relationship of faith and works. James chapter 2 tells us in verses 14 and 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and any one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, or someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so in the works of Abraham, he showed his faith, his willingness to believe that God was powerful enough even to raise his son from the dead. He ventured forward to that hill of sacrifice with his son in tow, bearing the fuel of his own death. Of course, we know a substitute sacrifice was provided. Nevertheless, Abraham was faithful unto the death, unto the death of his son, in fact, in his obedience. 
and in, his, and in the demonstration of God's call effectually working in his life, evidenced by his life and lifestyle of obedience. Thus, the life of Abraham reveals the relationship between those two, faith and obedience. Second major point this morning, the life of Abraham reveals the relationship between faith and promise. By faith, in Hebrews 11, 9, by faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A relationship of faith and promise. There's a paradox in the life of Abraham. What is a paradox? It's a circumstance that appears to be contradictory. It's surprising. The two parts don't seem to fit. Notice as we look a little more closely at verse 9, how this seems incoherent to the, unsuspect, or to the uninformed mind of man. This seems contradictory. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Abraham was promised an inheritance, a land, a place. And he was called out from a relatively, we presume, established society to go and to receive that promise. But he lived his whole life doing what? Traveling from place to place, never having a brick and mortar home, but instead living in tents. He lived, as, as it says in our verse today, in Canaan, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, as a sojourner, as a visitor, as a stranger. Turn to Genesis 23. Why this paradox? Well, there's several things in view. First of all, and we'll find in our next subpoint, that God works not just through one individual life in the fullness of His plan, but He works in chains of lives. You remember the genealogies in Scripture those are the ones where the names are hard to pronounce and we probably skim over them in our Bible in a year reading. Those are extremely important. The providence of God in the chain of generational faithfulness is demonstrated in these lives. After all, it says that Abraham did not receive in full all of the promise in his lifetime, but it was lived out incrementally and more and more so as Isaac and Jacob Joseph, Jake, the rest of Jacob's sons, and eventually the exodus and the, uh, the claiming of the promised land uh, was to come centuries later. One of the more precious and tender moments I find in the life of Abraham that demonstrates both his faith and his humility and the connection between his faith and the promise comes in Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years, verse 1. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. You see, Abraham does not act like a boastful property owner. He doesn't move in and lay claim and homestead on the Hittites' property. Instead, he's seeking them humbly wanting to purchase a bit of land to bury his deceased wife. He says, give me property among you, verse 4, for a burying place. 
that I may bury my dead from my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God. Pausing there. Notice the pagan inhabitants are already noticing the testimony of faith in Abraham's life. They knew that God had favor on him. They recognized him and his authority and standing before the Lord. And they recognized this with a desire to grant him the land he desi- that, that he needed. In verse 6, he said, Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose, verse 7, and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Mechpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of the field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. There's negotiations back and forth. Abraham insists on paying the full price. And so they finally settle on 400 shekels of silver. And it says, verse 17, In the field of Ephron and Mechpelah, which is east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that, it, that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. It seems to me that this is the first record of Abraham's laying claim or ownership physically, tangibly, to any of the land in Canaan. He pays full price for a small bit of land to bury his beloved wife. And what does he do? He goes on sojourning as a foreigner in the land, living this way. How could Abraham do this with joy? How could Abraham do this with consistency? How could he do it decade after decade? How could he live in this way? And this paradoxical paradoxical relationship, knowing that God had promised him this land, But he went and he humbly, he bowed before the Hittites, this pagan people. He paid the price of the land. He buried his dear wife and he moved on. How could Abraham do this and keep his faith, confidence, and assurance? He could do so when he remembered the connection between faith and promise. The promises of God are more secure and assuring, powerful and real than the temporal circumstances that seem to contradict them. Brothers and sisters, let us apply this truth. You have promises that God will keep you in the faith, that He will overcome the wicked one, that He will establish His kingdom in this earth, that He will judge in due course the evil ones who are unrepentant and build their towers of Babel against Him. Move forward in this pagan land, even though to some degree we are sojourners, as 1 Peter calls us, strangers and aliens. Do so with the faith of Abraham, recognizing the superior power and assurance of the promises of God. We may only own a bit of land. We may bury our relatives here. We may go on estranged to some degree in the culture that we live in because we serve a king of kings who transcends this earth. But you can do so faithfully year after year, decade after decade, when you remember that the word of God is more powerful, 
more assuring, and a more confident, secure foundation than the best that you can piece together by temporal circumstances, material possessions, and deeds to property, as it were, in this life. This is the testimony of Abraham. Abraham's life also demonstrates that the promises of God are not all realized in a single generation. By faith, again in our text, Hebrews 11.9, He, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with who? Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Later, verse 12, from him, this one man, Abraham, were born descendants as many as the stars of Abraham, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Can we relate to this, this idea of blessed and providential lineage? Well, if you are a believer, you bet you can. You turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. It says that God's power and promises is, is sufficient to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. That is like you and me, you and I are offspring of Abraham in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest speaking of Christ in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Realize this, saints of God in this room, you are partaking in part with the pro in the promise that was given to Abraham. The promises given to Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago are coming true in your heart and life if you trust the propitiatory power Jesus blood to pay for your sin and to give you new life you have laid claim to the glorious inheritance that was promised to Abraham and that is, was realized by him and all of his ultimately spiritual lineage even you and I grafted in carved in a place made for us as Gentiles into the vine so that we may flourish with the life of the promises that were granted unto Abraham and realize through every son and daughter. Multi-generational. Apply this to your own life. The American dream, the quintessential goal and purpose that is so popularly you know, uh, broadcasted in our nation, in our life today, it centralizes all of our ambitions to the span of our life alone. I remember, even in the church, I remember listening to a sermon at my graduation at a not-so-sound Bible school, theologically speaking, by an individual. He came, he was well-known, he's famous, you would know his name if I said it. And he talked about the dash on all our future gravestones. You know, I was born in 1977, God knows when I'll die. But between, you know, presumably on my gravestone, you imagine those two dates and a dash in between. And this entire message was, what will that dash represent? It was a message that was appealing to self-importance within the span of my lifetime as I listened to this sermon. So much of the quote-unquote gospel promises that are proclaimed to us through the self-centered Americanized version of you know, these great dreams and self-important actualization of what we would love to do with the Christian bumper sticker on the back that we hear in the sermons preached these days are centered on you. Reject them. 
Reject them. They're poison. It is not about us in the span of our lifetime. Nothing significant of the inheritance of Jesus Christ can be encompassed and appreciated solely in the brief vapor moment, wisp in the wind, lifespan of a single human. We belong to something much greater. God is giving you, has given you the tools to labor for a generation, if you are parenting children, that will follow you. And a generation that will follow them. Think of this. You are like a link in a chain of a necklace that is strung around God's neck, if you will. Just an analogy. You are like a single link in the chain. You are not the necklace itself, but you are just one part in many, many pieces. And you exist as that necklace to adorn, as a chain in that necklace to adorn the Lord. To bring glory to Him. Now, popular American Christianity would tell you that you are that God is your necklace, that God exists to adorn you, and He encompasses and 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 He uh, encircles you such that you are the featured, and He exists to just uh, glorify you, and everything is about you and centered on you. That is not the case. Abraham's life teaches us otherwise. This is a man who never got to build himself a house. Though he was very wealthy and he was the father of the faith, one of the most important figures in all of history, period. And he never got to lay deed to his own home. How could he do so without thinking of himself as a failure? Oh, I have to pay rent again. Wouldn't it be nice that my money would go to an established home? We all can relate to those thoughts. How could he die content as a renter, a sojourner, to the landlords of the Hittites his whole life? It was because he realized the promises of God are connected to his promises that are bigger than him, that will outlast him, that cannot and will not be reduced to the smallness of being realized in his lifetime. Consider this concept, the city of God. We talked about paradoxical nature, the relationship between faith and promise. We talked about the multi-generational nature of it. There's also something unique about this concept of the city of God that we find in Scripture. It says in Hebrews 11.10, He, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now this concept describes to us a different order of things entirely than is the default position of collective man. In this contrast of the city of God, we find by implication the counterexamples of faith that preceded Abraham telling us what the pagans do. Who killed Abel? Well, his brother Cain. What did Cain do after God judged him, sent him to a life of wandering? Did he embrace and repent? Did he embrace what God, this discipline that God had brought on him? Did he repent of his sin? Did he trust in the future sacrifice of the Messiah for his salvation? No. Sin was knocking at the door, it overcame him, and Cain went and built himself a city. It wasn't the city of God, it was the city of man. It was a vain and desperate attempt for him to find assurance, safety, security, prosperity. In light of his sin, he was condemned to a life of wandering which he feared. And so instead of embracing a life of wandering, in fear he built a city. Complete opposite of Abraham. Abraham was born in a city, but in faith he left it for a life of wandering. Why? Because he realized 
that the true city is not something made by pagan human hands and organized in our sin like Babel or Nimrod or Rome or Babylon or the city of Cain or any other example in our modern day. But instead, the city of God has a different designer, architect, builder, and Lord. And that builder and that designer is God himself. And so God is the undergirding foundation of everything that a city represents. What does a city represent? A city represents the integrated and mutual fortunes of individuals. So they pool together their resources, their labor, and their community. They integrate them, mutual fortunes, to help benefit one another. The integrated mutual fortunes of individuals And they're organized according to shared values. A city will fall apart if it doesn't have a basic unity around shared values. These are achieved, that is, their vision for the future and growth is achieved through division of labor, different people doing different things that benefit mutually their neighbors, consensual social order, agreeing on a government, and a common vision for progress. Those are kind of the basic sociological definition of a city. Now, all these things are familiar to us, even if this language sounded a little academic, I apologize for that. We all know what it's like to feel like we're part of a community, to find our identity there, and to seek refuge in such a place. Brothers and sisters, the refuge that we are to seek has nothing to do with the city of man. The refuge that we are to seek is that which is defined and established upon the foundation stones of the city of God. This is why missionaries can pick up and leave their home and find great, joyful, uh, satisfying, fulfilling work and and, uh, living in a hut in a third world country because as a member of the city of God, their life perhaps has never been more foundationally secured on the promises of God than when they step out in faith and do such a thing. We live in a society who shuns a life of faith and sojourning and wandering, and seek safety in the collective. Just like Cain, the sinners of America, just like any other you know, society that has pre-existed and will exist after us until God redeems this whole earth, is predisposed to seek safety, assurance, fulfillment, security, and joy somewhere else. Our president recently gave a speech What's the motto of our president's administration? His motto, you know it, it's to make America great again. How can we be assured that pursuing this motto is not just building the city of man? Well, we can be assured of this when we understand where greatness resides. Greatness is not defined by the terms of the city of man. Greatness is defined by the terms of the city of God. Greatness is a life that recognizes that Christ is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. In a recent celebrated speech, we heard promises. Also, we heard an assessment of our nation. Our president said crumbling infrastructure will be replaced with new roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, and railways will be gleaming across our beautiful land. He reminded us of Dwight D. Eisenhower. He said he initiated the last truly great national infrastructure program the building of the interstate highway system. Our president said the time has come for a new program of national rebuilding. And this message, this promise was met with standing ovations, was it not? Why? 
Well, it is comforting thought to live in a society that's progressing and rebuilding. This is the impulse of the collective of collective fallen man. We scramble for refuge behind the coordinated self-interest in a place of infrastructural and institutional security and assurance. This is why, listen, this is why the economy as an issue always ranks higher on the priority list you know, of a majority of voters than does justice for the pre-born. Think of all those you know, poll questions that, you, that really take the pulse of what uh, Americans are most concerned about. The majority are concerned about things like the economy, like how well and well integrated and the progress and the establishment of a city and prosperity and a place to live and bustling commerce and hope for the future and education for their children and free health care and so on and so forth. Why do I bring all these examples up? Because I want you Saint, to be prepared and equipped through the Word of God to ask this question every time a promise or every time an agenda of an administration or otherwise or you yourself individually is proffered. Ask this question, who is the designer and builder of this city? That question is a question that comes from Scripture that will help us in our discernment. Listen. We demonstrate our citizenship in the kingdom of God like Abraham when we invest our social, psychological, spiritual, and even material fortunes in the city of God. Don't get too tied up in the promises that come by the changing whims of administration after administration of the executive in this nation until, unless, and until they demonstrate repentance and the foundation of what a true city, nation, Government is built upon, pray for this for our leaders. Pray for Trump, President Trump, that he would have wisdom from God to recognize that the designer and builder of any sound nation is Jesus Christ and there is no substitute. Not himself, not Dwight D. Eisenhower, not any historical example, no one except the Lord our God. He is jealous to have a city. So jealous, in fact, that what remains as vestiges and crumbling edifices of the city of man in this globe will one day be wiped out by fire. And the city of God will be established and will encompass this whole earth. And that will be the sole experience of every living survivor of this eschaton. And the only ones who will survive are those who have faith, faith like Abraham. And look forward to a city, a security, assurance, a prosperity, and a hope that cannot be defined by this life and will not be limited to it and cannot be experienced in the course of our lifetime alone, but instead will come in the new heavens and the new earth. In closing today, let us consider one final relationship as we transition to communion. And this is the relationship between faith and power. Verse 21, of, I'm sorry, verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 11. We have another example. Abraham's beloved wife. It says here, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, God, faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, that's speaking of Abraham, as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven 
and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And we are counted among them. Notice the relationship between faith and the power of God. First of all, the promises that we accept by faith are established. They come to pass, to fulfillment, to fruition, in spite of us. Abraham and his, uh, Abraham's seed was as good as dead. The barren, barrenness of Sarah's womb was, is described as a deadness. A complete inability to be a progenitor of any kind, let alone a spiritual human race. But in spite of this, God moved heaven and earth. And from the womb once dead, he spoke life. And so Isaac was born. The first of many, many, many descendants. The line, the genealogy represented in the, in, in the flesh, speaking of the spiritual reality. And so it is with us. Again, in a womb as good as dead, a virgin's womb was conceived. Another son, in the course of time, Christ our Lord. And in spite of us, in spite of Mary's inability, her own sinfulness, in spite of all of us and our inability to save ourselves, or even cry out or recognize who the Savior was when He came, God has spoken life, Ephesians 2.8, into the once dead soul, of every believer in this room. That is the relationship of faith and power. Faith recognizes that the power of God fulfills His promises in spite of us. Therefore, against all odds, to the praise of His great name and unto the championing of His plan of salvation from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. This is, again, in context Sarah herself recognized she didn't plead to God on the basis of her faithfulness. Oh, Lord, we've been so faithful. Do thus and so. And said she exalted and rested in the faithfulness of her God. She considered him, the Lord, and his promises faithful who had promised. Sarah wasn't always faithful. She had a bad idea. She convinced Abraham to take his maidservant as a concubine to raise up seed, do an end run around God's promises. Let's take matters into our own hands. Abraham succumbed to this idea, and he, that wasn't wise for him. He was not faithful either. Abraham often didn't trust God. He feared the circumstances and the king sometimes in different environments where he went in. He lied about his relationship to Sarah. She was abducted, and later on the king uh, condemned him for lying to him and so on. Abraham and Sarah were not always faithful. However, they did have the gift of faith that shone through and beyond and overcame their sin. And this record is encouraging. It's encouraging because most of all what was evidenced, most substantially of all what was evidenced in their lives was not the faithfulness of two human beings, but the faithfulness of God. And the faith that was in them was a gift sovereignly granted by Him alone. And it produced, brothers and sisters, incalculable fruit. Pictured in the city language of eschatological fullness, we see the picture representing the fruit of the future as the book of Hebrews continues to unfold. Verse 22 of the next chapter. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels 
in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Galatians chapter 4 verse 25 speaks of the Jerusalem, that is city, which is from above. And let us close reading several verses in Revelation 21. Then I saw, John the Revelator exclaims, a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So you see an association of this city with all the redeemed. The elect themselves comprise, in one sense, the city of God. The lineage of Abraham has amassed such a multitude that it is presented as this gigantic edifice that glorifies the Lord. It's described as a holy city. It comes down out of heaven. It's not built from the dirt. Its foundations are not merely material and pagan and passing. But instead, as John describes it, he hears this loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former cities are gone. The former tears, the former sickness, the former sinfulness, the former death is gone. And at this time in redemptive history, all that remains is a city, a bride, adorned for her husband, New Jerusalem, the city of God. Praise the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we now transition to communion, we have before us at your table the very price represented that made the promises we have just read possible. I pray that as we partake of your broken body represented in the bread, as we partake of your shed blood represented in the cup, that we would remember and proclaim that the power of the promises of God, sealed and secure in the final and complete work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, will unfold in perfect and final fulfillment into history future, and we who are in Christ will partake in them gloriously so until we rejoin Abraham, Enoch, Abel, Sarah, Noah, and all the rest at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Help us, Lord Jesus, to look forward to that day and to consider your price as we partake in this table today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.